Hey, Brian, you just muted the uh, the music when you muted your mic. And we're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to today's episode. This is episode 214, episode 214. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, friend and co-host Ryan Ray with me today. Ryan, we have uh, a lot to jump into today, earnings reports and uh, a lot to look at. How's your, uh, how's your week starting so far? Well, if I could figure out how to work the the ones and twos over here, as I like to say, that would be that'd be nice. I always forget that I mute my mic on this thing; it mutes it through that thing. I mute it over here. It's anyways. So, um, but you know, it's been good, Josh. I actually have a little bit of a little bit of news to share. Um, so as you know, we talked about on the podcast at some, I believe, when I sold my stake in uh, R Square Global. Um, I don't know a few months back now. Anyways, and so I launched Ray Global Advisors, and so since then, Ray Global Advisors has been you know, working on client acquisition, and we're pleased to announce um, another client that we picked up today. You can follow some of us on LinkedIn, which is uh, Jubilee Royalty, which I'm an investor in as well. So invested in them in Fund 1, and in Fund 2, they have brought me on and Ray Global Advisors to be the VP of Media Relations. So excited to work with those folks. And if you're an accredited investor looking to invest in a uh, royalty fund, I'll let your boy. I'll let your boy. So a lot of stuff coming down that way. So, um, and we have some more stuff at Ray Global Advisors that we're getting ready to hopefully announce here in the coming weeks as well. So, uh, good start to the day. Other than that, man, it's uh, been rainy here where we're at, so it's kind of knocked that that heat off some. We came home yesterday from church, and it was like, oh gosh, a hundred when we left. By the time we got home, it was like seventy nine because the rain was pouring down. So it was, yeah. it was it was beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah. I, I... Didn't have to didn't have to run the AC quite so hard last night. Uh, so Ryan, last week we had mentioned that we had some uh, earnings reports that were going to be coming out this week, and uh, just wanted to jump in to just kind of get a, a snapshot of the industry so far. So the first article is going to be the two big boys, Chevron, Exxon earnings top estimates amid recovery and oil and gas prices. So both the companies reported profits for the second straight quarter. Uh, drilling has been increasing, prices have been increasing. And so these two companies have been able to uh, to really get their, their companies moving in the right direction. So uh, it's good to see for these companies. Hopefully, uh, you know, a lot of the mid mid-size and smaller guys are, are also able to turn a profit. We're going to see one here in, a, in a, just a minute that is not having a great year, despite all of the increases in prices and production. Yeah, and the other thing is Chevron is uh, reinstating its repurchase program. So that kind of tells you that they believe that not only are these past two quarters are going to be good, but the future quarters will be well uh, or go, go well for them as well. So, uh, yeah, so that, no, that's um, as we said here, midway through 2021, they're pretty confident about it. And, you know, we talked, was it last week about the Delta variant and kind of how that might impact demand? Um, a signal like this is, is good for at least their belief on where demand will be. Uh, moving into the fall and winter. It's yeah, say fall so, and winter when we're like in the middle of the summer, but I don't know. For me, in my mind, August is like the turnover. You start, you can almost expect fall coming, but we still have, <laughs> we still have a little way to go. Yeah. So Ryan, uh, at, at this point, uh, what would we say about, you know, Oxy Chevron, who was the winner in that deal? I, I think, uh, I'm, I'm certainly leaning towards Chevron at this point. You know, they get the billion dollars not to buy it, and then they don't have to deal with you know all the fallout from you know the COVID. I mean, they dealt with it, but they didn't have to deal with it. 
after being so uh, bloated, I would say, with extra debts and things. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that Oxy is necessarily in a bad position either. I mean, their stock prices are at 26. Um, articles about you know some of their cash flow has been good. Uh, the question is going to be, uh, I'd like to see their earnings report. I don't think it is out yet, but uh, always curious to see, you know, over time, who is going to be the winner in that deal. Um, right now, I'd certainly lean towards Chevron. Well, okay, right. So you have to profit, profit $1 billion for Oxy to win on yeah. that deal, right? Yeah. Okay, so that would be the first step. So you'd have to take a billion dollars and profit on it, profit, make profit on, on it um, for Oxy to be considered to win. And then you'd have to say, well, what did Exxon do with that extra $1 billion? And then if they made profit on that, you'd have to tack that on to the $1 billion that Oxy uh, you know, potentially made earnings on. Um, so that's kind of how you'd have to look at it. And I don't, I don't have those answers. I, I'm with you. I tend to think Chevron's probably in a better spot right now, probably more happy um, with their decision because they have a billion dollars if they want to invest in distressed assets right now. Right. So they could have went through last year and looked at it and, or they could have invested in something else or, or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, well, I guess uh, one of the curiosities would be, you know, if Chevron had bought Anadarko, uh, would they, be regretting it now just from a standpoint of adding on those debts. I'm sure they would have been able to maintain it being as big as they are. Uh, but I wonder if it would have improved or decreased their margins right now. That's kind of the, kind of the angle that I'm also interested in. Just to think it, you know, are they, are they really glad that they didn't get it? Take putting the 1 billion aside. Are they, are they happy that that deal didn't go through? And uh, I, I think they are. I think they yeah, will. well, when they buy it, when they buy it, actually, for less than. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you know, these deals, it's like drafting a first round quarterback. You know, you draft him and then, you know, it takes two or three years to kind of figure out how he shapes up. And then maybe he's, he gets re-signed. And so then you're four or five, six years in the deal. So, you know, seven, eight years from now, if this is a complete and utter flop for Oxing, then we'll look back and say, obviously, it's a terrible deal, but it'll probably take that long before we really get a good good grasp on uh, how this shaked out. All right. So I mentioned uh, an, uh, another company. So Pioneer uh, Natural Resources, they're warning of an $832 million loss for the quarter. They're expected to report a total net loss on derivatives of about $1.5 billion for the first half of the year. Uh so take the story of Chevron and say the opposite, you know, uh, you know, Exxon that they're, mm, that's, uh, that's, that's bad numbers, man. So they, um, they looked at, at sales, oil prices were above 40 and that first half of 2020 just sent them reeling. And I don't know, I don't know why they're not being, a, I don't know why they're not able to turn a profit this year. I don't know if they just like were overextended. Um, but it's, that's not good for Pioneer, man. Well, it looks like their 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 losses are going to come under hedges, right? And so, mm. if you know, um, so let's see here. Um, yeah, the loss many producers locked in sales price were about forty, but now face losses as, as price jumped to seventy. So, we'll see how it shakes out because I, I'm curious if they're saying that they're actually going to take a real loss, as in, um, you know, they didn't make much money, or they took a potential loss, which obviously. It's not potential now. It's we, we know it. But so so if they hedged at fifty and priced at seventy, that twenty dollars a barrel loss, um, it's a it's a it's a real loss in the sense of if you didn't hedge, you could have made it. But it's also 
not the but same. But not an actual. They didn't lose. Like, it, yeah, they didn't actually lose money. money. Yeah, so it's weird because they, they did, but they also didn't. So it goes both yeah. ways. Well, so when it talks about a net loss, um, well, I guess if it's a net loss in derivatives, it uh, it would be it would be slightly different. Yeah, but um, yeah, the, the earnings report is going to be the thing to look at. So that's supposed to be coming out today, I, I believe. Yeah, so I this is so. just a, a yeah. article about potentially what that's going to say. Right. And if this is for somehow it looks, here's the weird thing. If it looks better than what those numbers are saying, then their stock will go up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. everyone's like, well, they should have lost $830 million. And they come in and they go, well, you know, they lost 400 million on the potential hedges. They're like, oh, well, you know, you cut it in half. So you know, yeah, great news. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll see how they cover it next week. It's all about managing expectations. You know, that's, if you're going to have a bad meeting, what you need to do is prepare for it. You know, send out a memo that, the worst meeting ever is coming up. And when you get there, it's just averagely bad. It's good news. So uh, <laughs> you go to the Donald Trump school of negotiation, right? Set the bar hey. way out here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You call him rocket man and then you meet with him. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what'd you say? Oh, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, our good friend, David Blackman, he, uh, he had an interesting article that, uh, that I wanted to, to jump into. So, um, and this is before we have a couple of other things I wanted to talk about. Uh, he His article is titled, Forget About Peak Oil. We haven't even reached peak coal yet. Uh, now, I thought that was interesting because um, obviously um, I'm a big proponent of um, us not being at peak oil, that, that oil demand is we're far from the climax, uh, you know, the maximum or the uh, what what I would project to be what we're going to be at in say ten years, uh, but I have actually considered that coal is something that uh, what's from a from a third world perspective. If you're talking about countries like Africa and these areas that are developing, obviously coal is a viable solution that might have increased international demand. Uh, but the, the the way the question is posed and the way these you know the you know the ice uh, storms the way they happened recently, it makes me wonder if we're even at peak coal in the U S uh, because I'm, I'm wondering if they're going to, if, if you remember Blackman talked about them bringing in some more coal to offset, you know, uh, winterizing the, these places was one option, but also bringing in more coal. Um, so just this interesting uh, concept, you know, what, what is left for coal in the U S. Yeah, I think, um, I think coal in the U.S. is not not dead, but it's it's you know stage four cancer. You know, I think it's <laughs> it's it's you know it's got a long. Now that's if you're talking about burning it in new plants and stuff like that. If you're talking about exporting it, I think there's potential there because to your point uh, and what David makes in the article is you have Asia, Africa, and even Europe. There's spots where they're increasing their their um, their base load by using um, coal, and so I think those are all things you know to consider, and so. You know, we are in a post-industrialized nation in the U.S., and it's very hard for us to sit around and think about all of the things that we have and how that works downstream for emerging markets, third world nations, as they move their way towards first world status. And so um, because, you know, when you I'm looking outside my front yard right now, I can see houses and fences and trash and all of this stuff, uh, trash cans and all this stuff, um, you know, that doesn't just get here on its own. That's a very long and arduous process, and it requires a lot of energy to pull that off. And so the fact that 
we see this stuff, we kind of take it for granted because we live in it. But if you go to, you know, I've been to some pretty rough spots in Honduras and Nicaragua. If you go to those spots and then you try to say, well, how do you get from there where everyone's in extreme poverty to where I live at? It's, it's not very clear how you do that. And so but coal is going to be, in some of those countries, definitely a, a player. So um, Blackman's right. We're nowhere near peak coal. As for peak coal, I think he's right through too, especially like at China. They're, they don't seem to be. Um, they're built and road stuff. I think they've kind of slacked off on investing in coal plants for there. But as far as domestic usage, I don't think that's the case. Yeah. And, and I think that the it's just from the economics perspective in the U.S., um, coal and the ability to for these U.S. companies to produce coal and then export it, uh, that, is, that seems to be a viable industry. Um, that seems to be a, a something that could increase for, for years to come. So uh, that's good news for some of the people in the coal industry, because even if the green movement is pushing against it here, um, it's still a viable option for these countries that are, like you said, you know, in, in trying to come out of poverty. So, um, and that real quick, that's, I don't know if we mentioned it recently, but when we talk about energy policy, that's the problem is you have to be careful because U S talking about energy policy we usually put pressure on these emerging markets to kind of follow what we're doing and they're not in the same spot as us. And so um, if you talk to these leaders in Africa, they get quite frustrated that, you know, we're wanting to end oil and gas just as they're getting into the business for some of these countries. And, you know, they need this cheap energy to get to where we're at. So um, yeah, I agree hundred percent. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just frustrating. Uh, these countries that, you know, are on the verge of being able to escape poverty or, uh, in some cases being held in poverty by um, people that want them to use cleaner energy and they don't, you know, they, they need any energy, they need cheap energy, period, not necessarily what we would deem clean. Uh, so, Ryan, there's an article that, uh, well, I say article, it's not an article, there was some um, information that I saw uh, and I was curious your take on it. So, uh, this really reminded me of what uh, Dr. Anas uh, talked about on our show. Um, so the, the information I have basically said that uh, I think it came out of Bloomberg. Um, there was a, a OPEC survey done by Bloomberg and seven out of 13 nations in the cartel were unable to, uh, to increase production in July, despite the higher quotas. So, um, one of the things that Anas said, and, and I may be misquoting him here, so this is just something that kind of vaguely I remember him saying, that when it comes time for us to increase production up to a certain level, we're not actually going to be able to do it immediately. Like We're going to say, hey, we need 20 million barrels of oil, but we're not going to be able to produce that because we're not it's because everything's going offline when just because they raise the quota doesn't mean everybody's actually going to be able, be able to meet it. Um, and so as we see this happen uh do you think that do you think this is going to lead to do you think this is going to be something that will be quickly overcome or do you see this as possibly leading to even higher oil prices okay i've got mixed feelings in this so yes you you do have opec members who cannot increase production right you know because of a lot of reasons um but some have plenty of spare capacity the saudis for one then you look at the U.S., and I think we got a story about the, the rig count fail or leveled off. Um, okay, well, the U.S. can increase production, taking the federal land issue aside. Anytime it wants to do by infusing capital into these companies and these companies going out securing leases, right? So 
you know, that's that's how it works here. Uh, in the foreign countries, it works a little bit differently because they're they're uh, state owned. Um, so in the U.S., we're not seeing the increase in drilling for a lot of reasons. However, if prices got up to one hundred and fifty dollars a barrel, that goes away, right? There are people who would start investing in the U.S. Uh, drilling programs at one hundred fifty dollars oil. This it just would happen, um, and so you would see U.S. production start to rise pretty pretty quickly. Aside from that. $150 oil means that companies are incentivized to figure out ways to get all these other barrels to the market. So, you know, in these OPEC nations in Iraq and Iran, uh, Iran's a little bit different because of sanctions, but Venezuela, you know, all of these people are going to try to get their barrels to market. Furthermore, companies are going to invest money to find new spots um, for oil. So if you had $150 oil for two years, let's just say, Exxon, Chevron, all these guys would be throwing in hundreds of millions or billions or whatever it is of dollars trying to find new plays to go develop and be and capitalize on those deals as quickly as possible and get those barrels on the market as quickly as possible. So as the old saying goes, the higher the, the best uh, cure for high prices is high prices. The other thing that would happen if you had long-term sustained high prices is people would figure out different ways uh, to not use oil and gas. So, you know, uh, me and my wife both have a car. Well, at 150 dollars oil, we might go down to one car because, like, dude, we can't afford gas for two cars. Um, or people in the big city who are driving might bus. You, so you would see the market respond all kinds of different ways to mitigate it. So you'd see uh, oil companies figure out ways to increase production or find new plays. On the flip side, you'd, you'd figure out consumers would figure out ways to reduce their uh, dependency on gasoline, in this case, um, to lower their costs. And so I think that's where, you know, if you look at, you know, how much spare capacity is actually there? What would happen if it plays out? I think that's how it plays out because consumers just, and it, let's just go even higher. Let's say it goes to $250 a barrel. Consumers just can't afford that long-term. They just, we just can't afford $250 oil. You think about the price of your milk, your eggs, your lettuce, your beef, your beef, you know, all that stuff just goes crazy high. So you can't afford it. Um, and so the, and the oil and gas companies will be incentivized to find a way to capitalize on it, which would bring the price down. And consumers would spend less. So there's a lot of reasons I don't think that type of price would go up, uh, would stay there that long. Now, if you have um, some kind of shortage because of a constraint in the pipeline issue, that's different. But just from a production standpoint, I do believe that that would be uh, kind of how it plays out. I, I, I can't imagine U.S. investors not investing in $150 oil in U.S. companies. Right. Yeah. So, um so just looking at it from this perspective as well. So one, when I said that, just as a clarification, the uh, overall OPP output did increase uh, because of the Saudi output. Uh, yeah, Saudis, right? Yeah. So what, what you're saying there is that the Saudis met, you know, it was taken care of by the Saudis. You know, and the Saudis have more room to yeah. go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and, and I think uh, that being the point, the, the question, the question of at what point can, at what point would oil have to hit in order for the existing production companies not to be able to fill in any lag in output? Because, yeah, I, I, I think there's a possibility you, you could see oil get pushed up a little, but I, I think you're right overall that, uh, and, and I think Anas would agree as well, that um, it, it, it doesn't have to go up much for companies to pull it back down. It doesn't take a lot. I don't see it getting up to a hundred, honestly. Well, I mean, this is maybe take a few a few industries here and see how this might play out. If you're in the real estate business and you're showing houses, right, as a realtor, and gasoline is six dollars a barrel, 
you're going to be more inclined to go and to do a 3D tour of the house and put that online and say, if you want to see this thing, you got to pay me to get in the door because I can't go show this house 400 times. Uh, consequently, uh, the, the people who are in the lower income, the $150,000, $200,000 houses, they can't afford to go drive to look at 15 houses, right? They, they're on a tight budget. So they're, they don't want to do that either. So you would see the market would respond in a lot of different ways. And that's why I'm saying it's a good thing. I just think that when we project out these high prices, um, it would be tough on the consumer, be tough on your average person, um, and they would have to respond in unique ways. People would would tell their boss, I can't afford to drive to work. So you give me a raise, let me work from home. So all these things would come in. How much demand does that really take off? You know, I, I don't know, but I think you would see demand come off some because people just would say, we, we can't afford um, extremely high prices for this long, especially right now. Let's, not, let's, 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 don't, let's don't forget that most people are struggling because of what happened last year and the inflation as a result of it. So I don't think we could handle um, as a world $150 uh, oil. Yeah, agreed. All right. So uh, n- another uh, thing I got here, Ryan, was uh, according to TSA data, a uh, number of people flying in the U.S. Uh, hit a high of 2.23 million. So since the first time the pandemic started, the last four days in a row have all been over 2 million passengers in the U.S. We had talked about when will flights, when will, uh, you know, the airspace get you know, crowded again? When will the uh, people actually start flying like they were before the pandemic? Uh, so I thought this was a very encouraging number to see that people are, are actually um, flying around again. Now, I say that with a quick caveat that uh, I'm, I'm hearing of a lot of people. I think uh, Alan Dershowitz was on uh, the news uh, last week and he was saying that he didn't want to fly unless he could verify that everybody on the plane had been vaccinated. If they hadn't been vaccinated, they'd been tested in the last X amount of time to ensure that they don't have COVID because he didn't want to fly with anyone that was any risk. Um, so this news coming out with, you know, airlines and how they're doing so much better it's also sprinkled in with the news that this might be short-lived now i hope not i'm based on what i'm seeing from people um they're trying to I, there were some people that tried to relitigate this mass mandate and there was a lot of pushback so i don't know i i can't say for sure but i i feel like people aren't wanting to go back under those rules and that might be good news. That might be a good omen for the, uh, the airline industry as a whole, but I, I, for now it's good news to see these numbers up. Yeah. So it's great news. And if you're thinking about jet fuel demand and how that impacts the industry, it's, 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 it's but there you go. Two problems. So the first problem is we need to get those numbers back up. Okay. Now here's the other part is that for jet fuel demand, most of that demand comes on the long international flights. And those really, to my knowledge, aren't where they're supposed to be. So from a demand perspective, it's good to see people who are willing to fly um, from a actual drain on, on storage. You want those long international flights up and going. And I, I still think we're a little bit off before we get back to there. Again, that's going to presume that we kind of have a standard COVID, whatever that looks like, policy where people understand, if I go to country X, I can get back. And yeah. Then, you know, and so until we kind of get there, I think you're going to see that lag some. Um, but the fact that you're seeing these numbers of t- people going through the the going through means that they're they're fine with wearing the mask for two, three, four, five hours. Um, and so that would be good. That's a good sign that the other thing about the economy. Because think about it: if you're on a if you're on the bird, you know with that mask, 
that's about as miserable as it gets. You can't take it off. You're stuck on a plane, crying babies, terrible food. You know, like that's the worst. That's one of the worst spots to be on the bird. I mean, to be on with the mask because it's long. Like I've, I've done the Amtrak with the mask on last year. And it wasn't too bad. It's kind of comfortable, a little space. You know, you get up, kind of walk around. People look like crazy. On the bird, man, <laughs> you know, it's just a little different. I like in there. Thing. Yeah, you're packed in there with the mask on. They come by and look at you like, is that below the nut? Let me see here. Uh-huh, let's pull it, pull it up. Pull it up. You know, and so you know, you get your drink, you gotta sip it and put the mask back on. So uh depends on the flight the, the, the flight attendant. But anyways, so yeah, good it, it is a good sign though. It's a good sign that people are willing to get out, want to get uh, get around. And to your point about Dirtwitch, who's concerned, if you're flying around with the mask on, set aside what you think about what the mask can and can't do, people believe that it's either worth the trouble or that the mask work, right? So whatever, whatever or combination of two, but that's a, that's a positive sign for economic growth that people think, okay, I can fly on the, on the, on the bird with the, with the mask. That's great. I'll be safe. Or I want to suffer through with a mask on the fly. So either way, it's a good time for the, the economic rebound. Awesome. Well, uh, Ryan, we have uh, one more piece here uh, that I wanted to, to make note of. So we've been talking a little bit about inflation. So there's a report that came out about uh, commodity inflation, Heineken. Uh, so basically, they're the world's second largest brewer. Uh, they said that they've been experiencing some inflationary pressures, uh, and they said it's, it's worse now than it's been at any point in the past 10 years. And they said that it's primarily uh, circulating around aluminum prices and freight costs that those prices have been going up uh, and it is. So what we're going to see now is anything using aluminum, anything that requires freight, or you're going to see these prices start to, to go up even more than what they have so far. Um, so keep an eye on the Heineken prices. Uh, let's, let's see what they do because um, they're going to have to, they're going to have to make these margins up. And I think this is one of the issues that we're seeing and we're going to continue to see. Um, especially when uh, the president, uh, President Biden, he had a, a deal where he was asked if uh, I think printing another five to six trillion this year will uh, exacerbate this inflation problem, because even the most liberal people in the world know right now inflation is becoming a problem. And so they see it. Um, and when they asked him about it, he said that printing all this money was actually going to decrease inflation, reduce inflation is what he said, um, which is an absolutely idiotic statement. It really is. This is about as dumb as you could get uh, in terms of what you're going to expect. So basically, our our government's policy on dealing with inflation is to print six trillion more dollars. So if the prices are going up with the aluminum freight right now, um, we're about to make this thing get a lot worse, I, I think. So, um, well, hold on before you go any further. Two things. One, what happened to Heineken beer? Remember, they were all they were like the the, the talk of the town. Guys, been what a decade or yeah, beer. like they were on all the commercials. And I don't know what happened to Heineken, but R.I.P. Heineken. Um, or I guess they're still around. But the second thing is, listen to me, Joe, Joe, Joe. Hear hear me out. Hear me out. You can print another five to six trillion, and I won't criticize you if you just give me fifteen million tax free or thirty million with taxes. You 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 can you know thirty million I pay the taxes. 15 million tax free. I'm happy either way. This Ryan at warroommedia.com. We'll get the wire instructions taken care of. I mean, like, what, what what would I care if I'm getting 15 million, right? Yeah. So, you know, so Joe, if you want to hook your boy up, um, you know, I'll endorse you, even though you're not running in 2024, I'll endorse you in 2024. So I'm, that's the kind of guy I am. Um, 
how do you get 15 million out of this? Because if they're going to, if they, if they do print another 5 trillion, giving me 15 million, who does that hurt? No one, no one, not a single soul is hurt by that. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, why do they give you, I mean, why don't you have everybody 15 million? I mean, everybody's good at that point. So <laughs> we're, <laughs> It feels like there's some kind of economic principle in there. That <laughs> yeah, yeah, something. It feels like something something doesn't work there. Uh, a little fishy here. A little fishy. But so let's start start with me. Start yeah. with me. <laughs> give me the money, and then we'll figure out how how many more people we can afford to give it to. I have 132,000 acres before you can finish this episode. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't be able to get it back, baby. It'd be gone. Be gone. <laughs> Inflate it. Oh, oh. Speaking of uh, land. So you know, there's a guy that's uh, running to primary Abbott. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm trying to uh, talk to him, but anyways, he is saying, and we'll we'll we'll, we'll see here. This is what politicians always say. He's saying that if he wins, he's going to remove the property tax. He, he got, got my vote. vote. <laughs> <laughs> Endorsed. Endorsed. Yeah, yeah. Let's do this. <laughs> He had to be sold at remove. <laughs> like the FBI just said at January 6th. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> trying to get us in trouble always. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a joke. That's a joke. Uh, it's a joke, people. The comedy podcast lighting up. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, think about that. Remove the property tax. That would uh, that'd be pretty nice. Yeah, that would be fantastic, man. I'm I'm actually a little worried about it here in Texas, man, because property taxes are not something to play with, and in, in inflation is, is hitting the real estate market right now, uh, pretty severely. That is so. Anyway, I was talking to a, a lady uh, last week at church, and she said like her value of her home has gone up. She has no interest in selling, and she hates to see values going up. She's like, I gotta pay more in taxes. So I, she, she doesn't want to do it, and she's retired. You know, she has living on a fixed income, and oh, yeah. these inflationary you know prices are, are detrimental to her ability to you know survive. So mm -hmm. um, there's all these other aspects that a lot of people don't think about with with this stuff. Yeah. So the guy's name is Don Huff Huffins Huffins H U F F I N E S Huffins, um, and I think Rand Paul endorsed him. So for all you left leaning folks, that means that you definitely won't be voting for him. For any of you uh, libertarians like myself, you'll give them a long look. You'll give them a long look. So uh, yeah. anyways, remove the property tax. That would be a fantastic idea. So uh, anyways, all right, Josh, sorry to get us derailed on that with your FBI in full hat conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so we have we have a couple of uh, articles for the roundup. Uh, we'll run through these real quick, and I think we'll be able to wrap it up today. So first one. Drilling activity continues to climb in the Permian Basin. So activity's up. I know the rig count was down by three. Um, so it's at 488. So it's dropped three rigs, but production in general is up. Uh, next article, uh, ExxonMobil 2021 earnings recap. So we're going to just pop this in the show notes here if you want to go in and take a look at it. We've kind of talked a little bit about Chevron and Exxon, but this dropped uh, – there's a little bit more detail uh, specifically with Exxon. Uh, Endeavor Energy. Uh, we had a, a guy from Endeavor come on a couple uh, months ago. So Endeavor Energy uh, Resources Permian Basin Package. Uh, they retain energy net for the sale of a Permian Basin com package comprising operations in 20 wells in Slicer County. I may have you know, to pronounce that right, but uh, take a look at it. It's something that you're interested in. 20 wells. Um, 80% working interest. Uh, anyway, 
take a look at it. This is a heart energy article. Uh, we'll pop that in the show notes. Um, Grenadier energy, uh, the targets, unconventional horizontal opportunities. So company you might want to look into if, uh, if you're tracking some of this stuff. Um, and last but not least, Ryan, oil search Santos close to a deal to create top 20 global oil firm. I thought this was an interesting article. Take a look at it. Um, I'm not sure if they'll actually get this thing through, but uh, it's, it's an interesting read for sure. And with that, Ryan, I think that's it, man. That's all I got for today. I think my kids are fired up back there. I think you missed about four words in there. I won't tell you which ones. <laughs> well, if the listeners roast you because you hadn't had a good vodka murka moment in a long time. Hey, man. Man, look, these, this is international stuff here, man. I'm just a, a southern... It's just a southern moron trying to pronounce words from all over the world. <laughs> all right, folks. Uh, inside the war room this week, I have on um, a handful of folks. And Josh, you mentioned anything about this. So I have on the former founder of the Tea Party coming on this week. So uh, that should be interesting. Be sure to check out Inside the War Room. Um, and with that, until next time. Oh, oh, we also have uh, Brittany Franklin with Sky High for my kids are going nuts in there. Brittany Franklin with Sky High for kids. And so um, we'll play a part of that on this show next week. With that being said, until next time, keep climbing.